Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Galatians, and uh, we are in chapter 6. And we're at the end of our study in Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, to Galatians. You know, Galatians clearly defines for all those listening what it takes to not only enter the kingdom of God, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but also how to live out the implications of the gospel in our daily lives now. You realize that the gospel certainly allows us to understand that there is a payment, a price that had to be paid and now has been paid by Jesus' death on the cross that causes our sin debt to be wiped, to be marked, paid in full, which means we're assured of heaven. But the gospel is not just the fact that we have been assured of an eternity in heaven. It is, it is more than that. It affects how we daily live our lives. One author, I think, said it well when he described the book of Galatians. He said this, and I quote, We're going to watch Paul challenge them and us with the simple truth that the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but the A to Z that Christians need the gospel just as much as non-Christians. Paul will explain to us that the truths of the gospel change life from top to bottom, that they transform our hearts, our thinking, and our approach to absolutely everything. The gospel is the message that tells us, I love this, that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe but more loved than we ever dared hope. And it creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth, for obedience, and for love. Now, I'm going to take just a little different approach. If you were here last Sunday, uh, you know that I had to race through my five verses uh, last week, which doesn't bode well for 11 through 18. If I had to race through five, I, I realize that. So I'm going to take just a little bit of different, different approach. I told you last week that if I were planning our series again today, I would plan at least four weeks in chapter 6, and we've got two weeks in chapter 6. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the majority of our time this morning in verses 6 through 10, but I'm going to start out this morning at verses 11 through 18, Paul's conclusion, because I want to make sure that we at least conclude the chapter well, all right? When you do an expositional study, we want you to go verse by verse, and I recognize that we're not going to probably be able to end well, uh, at least as far as verse 18 goes. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to give you that up front, all right? And then we're going to jump back up into verses 6 through 10. And in our next study of the book of Galatians, we'll go in-depth in those particular verses, and I figure that should be about 2067. In fact, as I was thinking last night, your pastor at that time is probably in the nursery today. And so he'll, he'll do that in 2067. Lord willing, I'll be a very, very old man that will be senile and really not know what's going on around me, but I'll be here and I will enjoy his exposition of those particular verses. So let's go, jump down to verse 11 and then I'm going to take you through verse 18 and we're going to come back up to verse 6. Paul writes, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Now, when we started out the first Sunday in the book of Galatians, and if you've been here all the way through, you know I talked about this particular verse. It's as if Paul does this. Paul grabs the pen from his scribe, that person that's writing down what he's saying to the Galatians. He grabs the pen and he says, give it to me. I want to write this down myself. It was Paul's custom, in fact, if you've read through the books that Paul's written in the New Testament, after dictating a letter, he would take the time, and he oftentimes would take his own pen, and he would write a farewell. A standard signature, in fact, is what we find here in Galatians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
It's as if he's so concerned, though, with the Galatians that he doesn't write just that last line. He writes the whole concluding paragraph, and he wants to remind them. In fact, the text says that he writes in large letters for emphasis as if to say, hey, don't miss this. I want to repeat this just one more time. Verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Now, I know there's a lot of you here this morning that are going, hey, we've had enough of the circumcision, all right? We don't, we don't need any more on that particular word. But it's like Paul says one more time, hey, I got to remind you of this. And only in order they do that, that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. In other words, they're going to take this, even though maybe in their heads they might not believe that this is part of justification. They're going to do this in order that they won't be persecuted for not accepting circumcision. Verse 13 says, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Verse 14, But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Now in 2067, when you're here, and you hear this text really just, just built out, that's going to be a really incredibly classic text right there. That last line where Paul says, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. You know, it's really difficult after 16 centuries and, and more during which the cross has been a sacred symbol in our culture to really grasp at what Paul is saying here. But you have to understand the emotion that the cross provoked in Paul's day. In fact, the word cross was actually unmentionable in polite Roman society. Even when one was being condemned to death to crucifixion, the sentence used an archaic formula which served as a sort of euphemism so that they didn't have to say the word cross because it was so offensive to the culture. And yet Paul is a Roman citizen by birth and religious Jew by upbringing, not only dismisses as manure in Philippians chapter 3 verse 8 those things in which he had once taken pride in, but he actually embraces the very thing, the crucified Christ, and he boasts in the cross alone. If you understand the culture, you would understand that that is an incredibly shocking statement for him to make. Not just to say the word cross, to mention the crucifixion, but actually to say that I boast in that. That is my only hope. That's my only hope for eternity. All of my other pedigree means nothing. Verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. There was a time, by the way, if you remember in Philippians chapter 3, when Paul was quite proud of his mark of circumcision. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, he writes, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Not the sixth day, not the seventh day, not the ninth day, but the eighth day, just like I should have been of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, I was, he wrote in, in Philippians chapter 3, I was blameless. 
And yet now he's saying, look, my circumcision or your uncircumcision, it doesn't mean anything. It really is ultimately all about the cross. It's all about Jesus. After he became a believer, he became a marked man in a different way. He now gloried in the scars that he had received as a result of of proclaiming what it meant to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The contrast, in fact, with the legalists, with the Judaizers, is really plain to see. The Judaizers want to mark your flesh, and they they want to brag about you. He says, but I bear in my body the brands of the Lord Jesus Christ for his glory. And that is an incredible rebuke upon these religious people. In Paul's day, in fact, it was not unusual for the follower of some heathen god or goddess to be branded with the mark of their particular idol that they worshipped. It wasn't a temporary mark, by the way. It was a permanent mark that he he or she would take to their grave. And Paul says, hey, look, I've done just that. I have the marks of Jesus Christ on my body. By the way, lest any of you misunderstand, it wasn't like he went to the tattoo parlor and got the sign of the fish, all right, on his, uh, on his shoulder or anything like that. Unless some of you, you know, you're kind of thinking right now, hey, that tat that I wanted, you know, this is justification. I'm going to bear the mark of Jesus Christ. These were literally physical scars as a result of the beatings he had incurred because he embraced the cross of Christ. What an incredible thing. It was the practice in that day to brand slaves and so that everyone would know who the owner was and 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 Paul was the slave of Jesus Christ, and he wore those marks with great, deep satisfaction because he was a slave to Jesus, and he had the marks actually on his body to prove it. And then he ends by just simply saying in verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, be with your spirit, brothers. There's that word again that we got caught up on last week for 25 minutes. Amen. In other words, he says, hey, look, no more needs to be said. Because that's really it. It's all about grace, right? Now, again, in 2067, you're going to get a lot better explanation of that particular text, but until then, that's going to have to do, unless you want to do a little bit of study on your own, which I would encourage you to do. Let's go back now up to do just a little quick review, and then we'll make our way into verse 6. Verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, And you should keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. Here's what we talked about last week. The gospel frees us to love each other spiritually. How is that demonstrated as we love each other spiritually? We talked about that that last week. Galatians 6, 1-5 tells us that we should be part of a fellowship where brothers and sisters are actually helping us to grow. A place where people who love us are, from time to time, as the need comes up, they're correcting us. Remember I told you last week we're messed up people, and messed up people have to help other messed up people clean up their messes, and that's what we do. Paul is saying that's a good thing. That that brings about accountability. They correct us when we mess up, and they bring us back, and they restore us back to fellowship, not only with other brothers and sisters, but with God himself. Verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, we talked about last week, the Greek word here that's translated burden refers to heavy loads that are difficult to lift and to carry. Used metaphorically as it is here, it represents any difficulty or problem that you and I have in our life that we're not capable of carrying on our own. You remember what Jesus said in John chapter 13. He said, a new commandment I give unto you, 
what? That you love one another even as I have loved you. And that is the law of Christ that Paul refers to here in Galatians chapter 6. Now again, I need to take the opportunity to stress to you the importance of being an active participant in a local church and not simply a spectator. The only way that people are actually going to know when you have a burden that's too heavy for you to bear alone is if you are actually known, if people know you. It's always been amazing to me in churches of the people that are critical of the body of Christ, of brothers and sisters, because nobody came to help me in my time of need, but unfortunately those people are not known. There are people that come into a church service on a Sunday morning, they sit here, they sing a few songs, they listen to a sermon, and then as quickly as they can, in fact, if there's a prayer at the end and it goes really long, they prefer this, because then they jump out the back door and they leave and they come back seven days later. Then there comes a time when they need somebody in their life and there's nobody there. That's why you need other people. You need to know other people so that you can bear their burdens. They need to know who you are so that when those burdens come into your life, those things that you can't possibly bear on your own, there are people that are there to help you. By the way, another plug for a life group. That's why you need a life group. That's why you need to be involved. Over the years, I've heard uh, a person talk weeks or months after they have had one of these times of great burden, a load that they shouldn't even be expected to bear on their own. And they, they say something like this when I say, hey, why didn't you tell anyone? And they say something like this, well, everyone has trouble. Everyone has things that they go through in life. And I know that everyone is busy. And so um, I just didn't want to bother anybody. Let me say to you that, that that's wrong. That's wrong of you to do that. If you have a burden that you can't bear on your own, you need to let those things be known. And by the way, let me say to us as a church family, it is our responsibility also to be so engaged with people who are engaged with us that we know when something's going on in their life, right? That we know when we come to the rescue, we come to help them and to lift them up. So there are two extremes. One is a person like that. The other is the person, as I mentioned last week, that dials 911. Everything is a burden, right? You've known those people, right? I mean, Matt and I have been in ministry for a long time. We've known those people, right? Everything's 911. Everything. My cat is, is up the tree. I'm not sure he's coming down. The fire department's here. We're doing everything we can. Get the church to pray, all right? Now, some of you are going, don't go there. Don't go there because it's about your cat. I mean, I'm, I'm just... I, I'm just telling you, if it was your dog up there, it might have a little bit of sympathy. Your cat probably feel a little bit differently. The point is that it is so easy for us to think that everything is a burden. We can't possibly bear it on our own. When you have a burden that you can't bear on your own, we help you. And that's what brothers and sisters do. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 from last week says, For each of you will have to bear his own load. At first glance, we, we think that that contradicts the verse that we just read in verse 2, first he tells us to help each other carry their burden, and now he tells us to carry our own. That word load, though, as we discussed last week here, is a soldier's pack. It's a, it's a backpack. Okay? It's not a heavy load. All right? You can carry your own backpack. It's not something that you couldn't do on your own. We should help each other with the heavy burdens of life, but there are personal responsibilities that each person must bear for him or herself. Each soldier, in other words, must bear his own pack. And so we need discernment to understand the difference 
in our burdens and our loads, right? Burdens, if I had time, we'd play a little game here, and I'd give you scenarios, and I would say burden or load, all right? And we'd see how good you are at this of knowing what the difference is between a burden and your load, unless you call 911 for your cat up in the tree. That is not a burden, all right? That's a load. You deal with it, all right? I'm not going to the top of the tree for your cat. Probably not even going to pray that God will go to the top of the tree for your cat. That's a load. We need to understand the difference. Burdens are things that we cannot, we should not carry on our own, and loads are just simply a part of our life. By the way, this is a message that our society in general needs to hear. I really believe this. This whole idea of personal responsibility. I won't get off on that tangent this morning. But here's here's the key. We as Christ followers, we also need to understand that principle of taking responsibility, of bearing our loads. And so the gospel not only frees us to love each other spiritually, as in these first five verses, but here's the really cool part. It also frees us to love each other in a material or in a financial way as well. Look at verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, I've done a lot of studying on this particular text. In fact, I was ready to go into this verse last week. And there are many commentaries that have as the sole application here that basically this is an exhortation for churches to pay their pastors fairly. You know, and I'm thinking, wow, what a self-serving text, you know, that I just get up here and say, hey, make sure I'm teaching, you pay up, all right? I really think it's so much more than that. I mean, it's a great text maybe for a church to preach, by the way, and maybe a great application to make if there's a church that's not doing that. I will say that our elders, on behalf of you, do an incredible job of taking care of our staff. There are no complaints with that. We are free to minister and to serve you. We're not out working at Taco Bell, although for a short time I did want to get a job at Dunkin' Donuts, just for the sake of a, of a dozen free donuts, but the elders nixed that. I, I, I'm not able to do that, unfortunately. But you do a great job of, of taking care of us. You really do. And, and I appreciate that, and I know I say that on behalf of our staff. And by the way, this particular principle is taught many places in the New Testament. That where you come and where you receive spiritual nourishment, you are supposed to be generous with that place, with the local church. I don't think that that's the major purpose of this challenge from Paul in this text that we're in this morning. I think the context is so much broader than simply paying your pastors a livable wage. Most scholars believe it's a challenge for us to be generous with our money and our stuff in our fellowship, not only with those who teach, but also with other brothers and sisters. We're going to talk about this a little bit in a few weeks when we talk about what it means to be a church of irresistible influence. And as we go back to Acts chapter 2, and we see in Acts chapter 2 just how generous that early church was with their financial resources. The Greek text here could be translated, let him who receives instruction share with him, them, who gives instruction in all good things. And such a rendering seems very appropriate. If you were to go, by the way, to Romans chapter 15, verse 27, you would see Paul's challenge to to be generous with those that take care of your souls. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 11 and 14. And we often apply, by the way, these next verses on the backside of of, uh, verse 6, we often apply these next verses to reaping what we sow in terms of sin. And for sure, that principle is true. And again, when you go through this book again in 
2067, you'll probably get some more of that application. But I want to say to you this morning that I believe that the most basic lesson in this context is that of giving and being generous. So read verse 7 with me in that context, as opposed to maybe the way that you've typically had a pastor kind of beat you down over these verses, all right, about your sin. And let's look at it in a little bit different way. Verse 7 says, Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Now, i got to tell you this morning, I don't know a lot about growing stuff. Okay? I'm just not really good at that. I, I grew up in Nebraska, and I know you immediately assume that I must be a farmer, but I'm not. But the principle here is, is so simple that even someone without a green thumb can articulate the sowing and the reaping principle. I know, for example, that if you plant a pumpkin seed, you get what? Pumpkins, right? Pumpkins. You know what a pumpkin looks like. You plant, most of you know what a pumpkin seed looks like. You put a pumpkin seed in the ground, you get a pumpkin. You don't put a pumpkin seed in the ground and get, an, and get apples. I know that if you plant corn, you get corn. You don't get bananas. It's the first law of the harvest. And by the way, this morning there are four of them. Number one is this. You get what you plant. It's just true. It's true in, in all of nature. Ask any farmer, whatever you plant, that's what you get. And by the way, this is really where the rubber hits the road. God isn't fooled by your spiritual pretenses. This is really where the gospel has to free our hearts. God knows the, the motivations of our heart when it comes to our money, to our stuff. You might fool me, and I might think you're planting pumpkin seeds, and God says, no, those aren't pumpkin seeds. That's going to produce broccoli. Pumpkin's good, broccoli bad. God knows that, all right? I don't know that, but God knows the seeds that you were planting, and he knows the motivation behind those seeds. Look at verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so we have two fields this morning, and every day of our lives, by the way, until Jesus comes for us, we have two fields in which we can plant seeds for future harvest, right? One is our flesh, all right? If you're taking notes, you can just put a little hyphen there, and you could say, when we plant in the field of the flesh, that's when we're living for me. Anybody good at that? Just answer the question in your mind. Don't raise your hand and embarrass yourself. I will say, though, I'm fairly good at that. I'm fairly good at living for myself. Aren't you? Some of you? Aren't you good at planting in that field of doing things that are about me, about being selfish and stingy? And by the way, I sometimes live that way and and yet at the same time, in an ear, I'm hearing, oh, you're such a generous person. And inside, I just want to cry out, no, I'm really not. I plant in the field of the flesh more often than I care to admit. When you plant there, it's the flesh you're living for you. When you plant in the spirit, that's the other field, you live for others. You live for others. Freely loving and serving others. And if we do this, we're going to reap generously, Paul says. And we're going to bring pleasure to our Heavenly Father as we live out the fruit of the Spirit like we talked about in chapter 5. But you cannot fake this kind of response very long. You ever tried to fake living out the fruit of the Spirit? I have. You can't fake it very often. You know when you're faking it, and you know when the Spirit of God is moving in your heart, and you're behaving like who you are in Christ because the Spirit of God is flowing freely through your life. 
We cannot fake this kind of response. Righteousness that is seeking to be earned by keeping rules and doing good works is powerless to bring about genuine life change. So Paul says in verse 9, let's not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we'll reap if we don't give up. Here's the, the second law of the harvest, by the way, is you get more than what you plant. The third law of the harvest is you get it in a different season. Even I know that. It's probably the biggest reason, and there are lots of reasons why I don't plant things, but that's probably the biggest reason, because you get it in a different season. I want to do like the Jack and the Beanstalk thing. I was always intrigued with that story. You know, you throw the bean seeds out, you go out the next morning and woo Now, if things were like that, how many of you would plant things? I'd plant things. Let's have a garden, right? Because tomorrow morning, we're going to reap the harvest. I'd love that. I I'm, I'm want results now. I'm the guy who stands at the microwave with my three-minute bag of popcorn going, come on, come on. Anybody else do that? All right. We want to, we want to harvest today. And yet the laws of the harvest, third law is you get it in a different season. I know this, that if a farmer doesn't do the hard work that's necessary before he plants and after he plants, he never reaps the harvest. You can't be a slacker farmer. Well, I guess you can in America because even slacker farmer, it's all about that government subsidy thing. So I guess you could be, but you shouldn't be a slacker farmer, right? Because slacker farmers don't get a big bumper crop. You ever wanted, by the way, to give up on a person that you've helped? You ever get tired of doing good to certain people that God puts in your life? I will confess to you as a pastor, this happens to me quite often, where I just look at a person, they don't respond like I, like I, I was going to say like God wants them to respond, but let's be honest, like I want them to respond like I think that they ought to respond, and I'm just going, I'm done, I'm done. By the way, you ought to thank God for the elders that we have sitting around the table with me who were able to say, I don't think you really mean that, Brian. And at the moment, I'm going, oh, yes, I do. Oh, yes, I do mean that. And they're going, no, we know you. We know where your heart really is. We really don't think that you mean that. Take 24 hours, think about it. Usually about 24 hours later, it's a two-word email. You're right. Uh, you are right, maybe three. Um, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I go back and I recognize that it is because of my impatience, because I want the harvest now. Let me tell you that when you get involved in people's lives, whether that be just in a discipleship role, as we discussed in the early part of this chapter, or now you get involved in people's lives financially in a material way, it gets really messy, and you just want to give up. And Paul's challenge to these people in Galatia is, don't give up. In fact, I think the context would say there's going to be a lot of people that just aren't going to buy into what I'm telling you here in this letter. Do not give up on them. Keep doing what you know is right. Don't have that attitude that I might as well stop. There's no use in continuing. This is a bad investment. I'm pouring money and time down a black hole because the harvest always comes in a different season than which you and I plant. Now look at verse 10. This is where our big idea is this morning. So then, as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. Here's law number four, by the way, of the harvest. You can't change this year's harvest, but you can do something about next year. If you've been a slacker farmer and you go out and you go, man, look at the prices of grain. I wish I'd have done that. You can't do anything about it, right? You didn't work, you didn't plant, now here's what you're sowing. Nothing, nada. 
You can't do anything about last year's harvest, but you can do something about next year. Because Christians have a responsibility to do good to everyone. I think it's important for some of us to be reminded that this means everyone. You might have been in churches in your past where they only wanted to help those who were part of the brethren and the cistern. I always wonder why you call them brethren and then sisters, but it's, I think it's the brethren and the cistern. They always wanted to help just those that are within our little holy huddle. We might help those outside of our little holy huddle, but what we really need to do, what they really need is the gospel. And so we'll give them a Bible. If they're a drunkard, maybe we'll give them a 12-step program, but that's as far as we're going to go. If that's you, take note that doing good to all men often involves, often involves more than just evangelism. I think it's really important for a solid evangelical churches to understand that because we are so zealous for the pure gospel, and as we've talked about for months now, we should be, and yet we forget that we are supposed to do good to everyone. And it is, my friends, so much bigger than just the gospel. It is being willing to meet their needs in a material, in a physical way. And we so desire at Northwest to be a place like that. In fact, that's, uh, that's part of our strategy going into this, uh, this building program. We want to be a place, and we've, we've said it this way, we want to be a place where people come when they are at the most significant crossroads of life. We want to be a place where we meet people there. Oftentimes, those are opportunities to share the life-changing message of the gospel, but sometimes it's just helping them to meet an immediate need. And the Apostle Paul says we should do that. We should do it to everyone as we have opportunity. Now, we have a special responsibility. In fact, it says, especially those who are of the household of faith, as we have opportunity. When we hear of a need and we have the resources to help, like in a home, the, the, the family needs come first, and then we help those outside, right? So we have a responsibility to those that, that are part of our fellowship. They, 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 th this is their, their community of faith. This is where they worship. We have a special responsibility there. Now, you may have been wondering all along over the last several weeks where Paul was going with all this talk about the gospel. I've had questions, and, and obviously those questions are answered in our study. What does it look like when the gospel gets a hold of your heart and it really changes you? We talk about the radical transformational nature of the gospel. What does that look like? What does it look like when you get the fact that Jesus plus nothing equals acceptance with God? That you don't do what you do so that God will like you more. What does it look like when you understand that freedom is not living however you like, but it's living in the power of the Spirit to serve and to love other people? Paul tells us right here in this text that, that, that the gospel frees us to love others. It frees us to love each other spiritually by restoring one another, as we talked about last week. And then it also frees us to love each other financially in a generous way. It really frees us to live our lives, I, I like to say it this way, with, with life wide open, right? And so you're saying to yourselves, I know you are right now. In fact, you want to blurt out the question. You, you want to ask me right now, well, how do we do that? We are so touched. We are so moved by your sermon this morning. How do we do that? I'm so glad that you asked because James said that it would be horrible for us to be simply what? 
to be simply hearers of the word and not doers. A lot of us are good at hearing but not doing. So here's what we're going to do as a point of application. We often have needs in our church family. People lose jobs. They can't pay their electric bill. They have medical issues. A family member suddenly dies and and they're across the country or in another country and a person can't get there. We have single moms that have trouble making their income last till the end of the month. We have people and organizations in this community that, that from time to time have needs and we seek to help them with those needs. We have global partners who have needs. Just this week I received uh, an email from one of our pastors in Kenya. Kenya is in, a, in this particular region, is in famine again. There are literally families that are sitting in their huts all huddled around in a circle. They have no food to eat. And up until this time, we as a church, we've simply met those needs out of our, out of our ministry fund. And for a year or so now, I've wanted to establish a fund where we could give money above and beyond our normal weekly giving to our ministry fund because obviously we have obligations according to our budget. But I've wanted us to establish a fund where we could spontaneously be generous at any moment that we saw a need inside this body, in our community, or around the globe to help with those needs not only inside but outside of our local fellowship. And so here's what we're going to do. Starting next Sunday, when we celebrate communion together, as we will next week, and each time from now on, you're going to have the opportunity to give to everyone, especially those that are of the household of faith. And I want you to be generous. And I want you to give over and above. Maybe I was thinking last night, maybe a good, a good thing would be just, uh, you know, whatever's in your purse, whatever's in your wallet, okay? Not the credit cards, unless you want us to swipe it and just, just say whatever we feel God leads to put on the credit card. That'd be a great thing too. That'd be kind of fun. Actually, just put your credit cards in the back boxes. That would that'd be awesome. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep those funds in a separate account, and it's going to be used to exclusively meet the needs of people in our fellowship, in our community, and around the globe. And we're just going to simply call that fund share, okay? Just going to be share. When we talk about, hey, here's our share offering, you know what that is. You go back to Galatians 6.10, and you say, hey, we're doing good to all men, everyone, especially those that are of the household of faith. Isn't that cool? Yeah, thank you. That's great. I'm, I'm excited about it because we're going to have fun. I hope that fun gets into the tens of thousands, maybe even several hundred thousand dollars that we're on a regular basis just taking money out. And then as we have opportunity, as God blesses us, we're putting that money back in and we can respond spontaneously to needs inside and outside our body and around the globe. You notice where it all began up in verse 1. It's that single word, brothers. The idea is this, that I would do stuff for my brothers and my sisters, for my family, that I wouldn't do for anybody else. But the gospel really changes our priorities. It changes our perspective so that not only do I do those things for my brothers and sisters, I will do those things for everyone because the gospel has radically transformed and changed my life. There's a whole theology in that one word, by the way, brothers. One writer wrote it this way, we're united in our fallenness, covered with dots and marks, but also now united in our reception of grace. Until we realize just how bad, how scarred, how broken, and in need of restoration we all are, and just how much grace we've received, 
the Christian community rightly and truly understood and experienced is an outpost of heaven on earth where we are all brethren with a common father, all restored by a common savior and all seeking to restore each other. He writes, may we be increasingly a part of and foster a grace-filled community. And here's the bottom line. Here's the conclusion of the whole matter of the book of Galatians. If we do not love one another, but we're selfish and make our goal, our happiness, our comfort, our satisfaction, our preferences, we destroy our potential influence for the gospel in this community. See, my friends, the gospel message, the pure gospel message that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. When you encounter God with the pure gospel message, everything does change. I want you to know I really believe that. And I think a number of you believe that. If you didn't believe that, you wouldn't be here this morning. It isn't just some little clever sermonette that I preach to you that changes your life. It is the gospel that radically transforms and changes everything. And here's the truth of the matter. Jesus can handle our sin. He can handle our regret. He can handle our our failure and our disappointments. We take all of those things and we lay them at the foot of the cross and we lay it down trusting him to do what he says that he will do and what he's already done. Everything changes. That becomes a life-changing, eternity-altering, incredible gift. That's the gospel. The gospel frees us to love each other, to love one another in a big, big way. And when we do this, as Paul says, we fulfill the law of Christ. I trust that as we start this next Sunday, that you'll give generously. And by the way, again, I'm I'm saying let's give above and beyond. You know, I don't care if it's a $10 bill. You put a $10 bill in there over the course of several communions over a year, and we all do that. And All of a sudden, we're able to help in an incredibly generous way. And we are able to live out the gospel message. I pray that that'll be true of us as a fellowship of believers. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for the application of your word, which are so many more even than what I mentioned this morning. God, I pray that you would continually be transforming and changing my heart. I recognize that I can't lead people in a place that I haven't been, a place that I'm not willing to go myself. God, I want the the, the message of of the gospel that I trusted in when I was nine years old to still mark my life at age 48. I want to be radically transformed and changed. I want my perspective, my priorities to be different because I'm storing up, I'm I'm planning for a harvest that is so much bigger than this short time that I spend on this planet. The gospel frees us up to live that way, God. And I pray those those of us that name the name of Jesus Christ, that we will indeed live that way. And as a result of living that way, God, I pray we will be an irresistible influence for the cause of Jesus Christ in this community. We pray these things in Jesus' name.